Hello, welcome, what's good? This is Danley and Friends, where I share empowering stories, encourage raw, open dialogue, and explore intriguing ideas to empower you to maximize your life. Coming to you from the heart of the heartland, Columbus, Ohio, I'm your host, Ryan Danley. Let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, this week will be April 20th or 420. And if you are familiar with cannabis culture at all, then you know that 420 has significance. And where did that significance come from? Well, in 1971, five high school students in San Rafael, California, used the term 420 in connection with their plan to search for an abandoned cannabis crop based on a treasure map made by the grower. They called themselves the Waldos because their typical hangout spot was a wall outside the school. The five students, Steve Capper, Dave Reddix, Jeffrey Knoll, Larry Schwartz, and Mark Gravich, designated the Louis Pasteur statue on the grounds of San Rafael High School as their meeting place and 4.20 p.m. as their meeting time. The Waldos referred to this plan with the phrase 4.20 Louis or 4.20 Louis. After several failed attempts to find the crop, the group eventually shortened their phrase to 4.20, and that ultimately evolved into a code word that the teens used to refer to consuming cannabis. Steve Hager of High Times Magazine popularized the story of the Waldos. The first High Times mention of 4.20 smoking and a 4.20 holiday appeared in May of 1991, and the connection to the Waldos appeared in December 1998. Hager attributed the early spread of the phrase to Grateful Dead followers after Waldo Reddix became a roadie for the Grateful Dead's bassist, Phil Lesh, and called for 4.20 p.m. to be the socially accepted time of day to consume cannabis. If you're like me, you weren't introduced to cannabis in any scientific way. It was in adolescence and it was your friend saying, yo, I got some weed. And you checked it out and it made you feel good. And that's what you knew about it. And it was completely taboo. You didn't really mention it. The people that did it were stoners and they had this negative connotation about them. So people said, and it was something that you kept kind of hush hush. Maybe some people did it at parties occasionally, but the regular users of it weren't considered good people in the eyes of many, in the eyes of the majority. Fast forward about 10, 15 years, and we go from this brick brown marijuana that looks very similar to compacted grass or oregano to these little pens with highly concentrated weed juice in them that everyone seems to be carrying around and edible gummies that even people's grandmas are taking and talking about. Interesting how fast the transition happened. And there are still some people who seem to demonize it. However, an overwhelming majority seem to be okay with it for adult consumption, similar to how alcohol is consumed today. And if you're 21 years old, you should be able to do it. Whatever. What's the big deal? That is a new sentiment. You know, that hasn't always been there. And for a long time, marijuana has been something that people are afraid of because it's illegal. You know, these classifications form walls around our logic because they stop us from analyzing what the situation actually is. Like the fact that marijuana is classified as a Schedule One drug, which means it has no accepted medical use. However, you can walk in any one of the states where marijuana is legal at the state level for medicinal use, and you can walk in with a prescription that a doctor wrote you and pick up some weed. Wild! These classifications and prejudgments and erroneous labelings of things that can be beneficial, I think, cloud our judgment. And for that reason, with our next guest, I seek to uncloud your judgment of cannabis. My next guest, Dr. Evan Dezu, is a trained pharmacist and cannabis advocate. He's the guy who got me to start calling it cannabis instead of marijuana, because when you look up the history of the word marijuana, you realize that it was coined by the anti-cannabis factions who were looking to tie the perception of the drug to the anti-immigrant sentiments at the time. They wanted to underscore the drug's Mexicanness, and so they went with a Spanish-sounding version of the word. In 1994, Eric Schlosser wrote in the Atlantic article, Reefer Madness, 
The political upheaval in Mexico that culminated in the Revolution of 1910 led to a wave of Mexican immigration to states throughout the American Southwest. The prejudices and fears that greeted these peasant immigrants also extended to their traditional means of intoxication, smoking marijuana. Police officers in Texas claimed that marijuana incited violent crimes, aroused a lust for blood, and gave its users superhuman strength. Rumors spread that Mexicans were distributing this killer weed to unsuspecting American schoolchildren. Sailors and West Indian immigrants brought the practice of smoking marijuana to port cities along the Gulf of Mexico. In New Orleans, newspaper articles associated the drug with African Americans, jazz musicians, prostitutes, and underworld whites. The marijuana menace, as sketched by anti-drug campaigners, was personified by inferior races and social deviants. In 1937, U.S. Narcotics Commissioner Harry Anslinger's bitch ass testified before Congress in the hearings that would result in the introduction of federal restrictions on marijuana. According to DrugLibrary.com, Anslinger's testimony included a letter from Floyd Basket, the city editor of the Alamosa Daily Courier in Colorado, which said in part, I wish I can show you what a small marijuana cigarette can do to one of our degenerate Spanish-speaking residents. That's why our problem is so great. The greatest percentage of our population is composed of Spanish-speaking persons, most of who are low mentally because of social and racial conditions. Wow. Folks weren't just worrying about Mexicans and jazz musicians either. Within the last year, we in California have been getting a large influx of Hindus, and they have in turn started quite a demand for cannabis indica, wrote Henry J. Finger, a powerful member of California's State Board of Pharmacy, in a 1911 letter. They are a very undesirable lot, and the habit is growing in California very fast. The fear is now that it is not being confined to the Hindus alone, but that they are initiating our whites into this habit. Yo, who comes at the Hindus? That is something I've never heard of in my life. That is wild. You don't hear any Hindu jokes. I don't know any of the Hindu stereotypes, to be honest with you. But there is a stark contrast between the pre-1900 press references to cannabis, which relate either to its medical usage, interestingly, or its role as an industrial textile, also interestingly, if you look enough, and the post-1900 marijuana references, with some like, not too long ago, a man who had smoked a marijuana cigarette attacked and killed a policeman and badly wounded three others. Six policemen were needed to disarm him and march him to the police station where he had to be put into a straitjacket. Such occurrences are frequent. If you know anything about cannabis, you know those are straight lies. You might be able to tickle somebody who's too high and disable him and put him down. You might be able to put on some good tunes and let them get lost in the moment and you'd be able to disable him give him a comfy couch and he might sink into it. It is not going to take six people. Y'all are tripping. Or how about this one? People who smoke marijuana finally lose their mind and never recover it. But their brains dry up and they die. Most of times, suddenly. Can you imagine? Well, my dude Evan is here to dispel these rumors and so many more as we talk about the endocannabinoid system we talk about terpenes, these tiny compounds inside of the cannabis plant that are responsible for its effects. If you've gone into a dispensary, you've probably heard of indica versus sativa. Your indica is going to be your couch lock, body high, a little more relaxing, a little bit more of a you know, downer type of situation. And your sativa is going to be more of your upper, your increase in creativity, your energetic, um, that type of situation. That is how it's characterized. But Evan actually gives us some insight into why that may not be the case and why terpenes may be responsible for these effects. We talk about methods of ingestion and which methods cause the least harm in the body or the least irritation, if you will. You'll notice that Evan is super well thought. He's very inquisitive and he's very curious. He's a lifelong learner and that's why he's someone whose opinion I regard very highly. He doesn't play when it comes to learning about these things. I think that'll be evident. I learn something from him every single time I talk to him, and I consider him on my life's board of directors. So grab what you need, and let's proceed to light up that incense or those candles or whatever you need to get in the mood for the Danley and Friends podcast. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my man, Evan DeZue. 
And we're on a special episode today. Uh, it's actually 4.20 p.m., which is interesting because this is the 4.20 episode. <laughs> and those of you who are familiar with the code, uh, you know, know what 4.20 is all about. It's about cannabis. And uh, my man, Evan, has become somewhat of an expert in cannabis, was interested in it and really got into the science behind it. But uh, before I, you know, give away all your credentials, I like to have my guests give their elevator pitch. So if you had to say, who is Evan DeZoo? Who are you, man? All right. Well, Danley, first of all, it's uh, awesome to see you again. Who am I? I can lead now with I'm a father, which um, is the only thing that I ever knew that I absolutely wanted to be. Whenever they asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was, I want to be a father. I'm like, okay, but what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to make money? I'm like, I don't know. I want to be a father. <laughs> you like math and science. You want to be this or that. Sure, whatever. That sounds good, but I want to be a father. So I am proud to say that. And I'm a person like you who has a, um, I describe myself as a lifelong learner, very curious. And that has kind of, uh, what shaped my interest in things. I have a lot of varied interests, but I guess I wouldn't describe myself with what I do, but it's pertinent to what we'll be talking about today. So I am a pharmacist. I went to school, got a doctorate of pharmacy, and I practice pharmacy right now, but my main um, focus is cannabis. So that has been a long journey. Started out not uh, academic, I'd say. More social, <laughs> kind of social, like all but, of us in adolescence, probably. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but that led to one thing to another. It's been, let's see. So that was probably, wow, eighteen years or so. I'm coming up on twenty years of of we're getting old, cannabis experience. So I've always had an interest in plants, nature, science. I describe myself as a naturalist, a scientist, um, a creator. I like to create things, but uh, my interest in science led me to pharmacy and then um, not really the profession that I dreamed of once I got into pharmacy. Uh, it's kind of a day-to-day -day grind. So I was looking for other things to explore with that knowledge, that, which led me further to cannabis. So that's kind of how I got where I am. I mean, as far as your day-to-day, -day, you were like whipping up solutions uh, for patients, right? Like actually like mixing together Medicines, yeah. is that correct? Yep. So uh, before I went to pharmacy school, I worked at Cincinnati Children's Hospital doing um, hematology, oncology research. And then I was working with a pharmacologist there, decided to do pharmacy school and worked as a uh, infusion pharmacist. So we'd mix up IV medications, usually antibiotics, specialty medications. Um, and yeah, that was... I learned a lot doing that, um, but not my, my passion, really. So, <laughs> You know, um, I don't think IV drugs are any kid's passion. I've never yeah. talked to a kid who said that. <laughs> well, you know, it's really, really interesting, the science behind it. It's also pretty uh, it's stressful and high risk. You're mixing up medications for infants that, if someone were to make a mistake, would be catastrophic. So uh, it carried a lot of weight to it, which... I think sometimes I thrive under that stress and when I'm in the job, but then going home, it's kind of hard to decouple that. So, but yeah, it was, I definitely, that wasn't my answer when I was a kid. IV infusion <laughs> medications. Right on, man. So, uh, you know, you mentioned that like many of us, you got into cannabis, probably the non-scientific route is more of a exploratory thing. How did you come to cannabis as uh a medicinal plant or, you know, this scientific interest in it, if you will. Sure. Well, you know, I'm, I'll go back to the beginning when I wasn't, I would say knowingly exploring it either medicinally, spiritually, scientifically, it was definitely coming to it from a, just a, a curious exploration, a young adult, like, okay, they tell us this is bad. What's this all, all about? But and I think this is something that's kind of important to recognize when you're talking about cannabis as a whole is that when I continued to use it, it was because I was driving benefit from it. Now, I didn't exactly know what that was at the time. I probably wasn't using it as 
efficiently or um, optimally as I could have been. But from an early perspective, or early point, my perspective was always of respect for the and, um But now I use it in a, in a different sense. So that was the, the interesting thing that was when I was using early on, it was harder to navigate the stigma that goes along with it. So to feel like, man, am I being a bum right now? <laughs> you know, like this. And even as steadfast as I was, like, I know this isn't hurting me. I know the science behind it. You can, that's still, you still kind of feel that uh, societal per- perception of like, okay, I feel good about myself, but this, this is looked at by everyone else in a bad light. My mom, she, uh, I still remember to this day. <laughs> I was getting ready to go to a friend's house as I was like 16. And she's like, sure, sure. We just need to talk about something beforehand. And I'm like, okay, what's up? Like, I'm ready. And she goes, uh, in this weird tone, just like, I hear you and your friends have been experimenting with marijuana. I'm like, what the fuck? Where did that come from? It just knocked me. It was like, I was stunned by it. And I just sent myself, I was just like, I got to go to my room. I just like grounded myself. I'm like, I can't <laughs> even talk. I don't even know what to say. Uh, and the funny thing was we had, there was like a blunt waiting for me at the spot we were going. I just like knew, I'm like, I have nothing to say right now. But um, that has come full circle because now my mom is asking me questions about cannabis and like how to appropriately use it and things. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I always came to it with a scientific perspective, but um, now it's more so uh, trying to have a deeper understanding of it and how it can help people medicinally as well, outside of myself. That's really cool. It sounds like, uh, you know, even early on, you've had a respect for it and it just kind of continued as you forayed into this journey of discovery, if you will. And, you know, on this journey of discovery, can you kind of talk about the process? Like, how was it that you learned about it? Um, I know you at some point started going to like industry events and things. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I'd say the, um, I, as I mentioned earlier, just love learning about things. So I'm, I don't mind reading primary literature. So I was pulling um, journal articles on cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, which we can touch on uh, before I went to pharmacy school. And then that's what kind of pushed me to go to pharmacy school. I thought I can learn about this and help people. Um, but I went to Ohio State for pharmacy school, which is at the time, uh, I mean, Ohio State, one of the biggest institutions in America and recognized as like a top five pharmacy school. Ohio did not have a medicinal cannabis program at the time, but it's a graduate school. People go all over the country. At this time, multiple states had legalized it for adult use outside of having a medicinal license for it. Um, and there were many, many other states that had, had medicinal programs for decades. So I thought we'll touch on this. This is something I can explore. Uh, but cannabis was mentioned once throughout my four-year doctoral program, and it was in the, the drugs of abuse section. Wow. And I was just like, that was actually kind of difficult because I had read all this and I'm like, really, it made me kind of question, like, am I in the twilight zone right now? This, these are papers that have been published for decades. And um, outside of cannabis, the endocannabinoid system, so you can think of it like the pulmonary system or the, the cardiac system. It's an essential component of our bodies. And to not even mention it when you're dealing with pharmacology is uh, I just couldn't understand what we were doing. So that was, um, that was an interesting time. But after that, uh, I moved out to Oregon where they have an established cannabis culture out here and clinicians were actually practicing. Uh, so I was able to meet some, yeah, I did some, um, they have scientific conferences out here. Uh, a couple, uh, we did 
an Oregon Cannabis Clinicians Group that I joined. And then uh, Oregon also has, right now I'm serving on the Cannabis Commission. So that's dealing with patient equity and health equity. So issues it, that cannabis users in the state um, encounter. So like, you know, this literature, you're getting into it and you find this disparity between uh, what you're learning on your own and what's being taught in institutions. Um, mm-hmm. What were you seeing in this literature and papers that you know, sparked your interest? Well, a lot of it is because of how much is unknown about cannabis. And that kind of really sparked my, that curiosity that I have, like the, the potential to learn, like I can learn all this stuff that's not being talked about, but there's going to be new uh, developments and new discoveries along the way. So um, the first thing that stood out was just the endocannabinoid system. So we'll talk about that a little bit. It's a main function is homeostatic regulation. Basically, it regulates all other body systems to help uh, us function optimally as a whole. And um, seeing that that's not being even mentioned, while we are talking about all these other systems, really interested me because as I dove deeper, there are some some um, potential explanations for some of the long-term chronic disease states that we have that we're not treating optimally or fully understanding that could be implicated by the endocannabinoid system. Uh, what are a couple so of those? those? Were, what was that? What are a couple of those? I'm curious. Yeah. So, well, basically, we'll, we'll just do a uh, talk about the endocannabinoid system real quick. That is, if we think about cannabis, main thing that people probably think about is THC. So that's what would get you intoxicated or high. Uh, so that's an exogenous, it's a cannabinoid, a phytocannabinoid. So from the plant, an endocannabinoid, we also produce cannabinoids within our own body. Um, so you have your endocannabinoids, which are ligands that interact with your cannabinoid receptors. And then you also have enzymes that either help to create these endocannabinoids or break them down. And those all exist in a balance. So these molecules interact with the receptors, and you have enzymes to either create more of the molecules or degrade those uh, molecules, depending upon what's going on. And um, the, some of the long-term disease states, uh, the, those could be neurologic diseases like dementia or chronic inflammatory diseases. A lot of the diseases that are associated with aging could be the result of what's called a um, endocannabinoid system dysfunction. So that balance of either the cannabinoids that you're producing, the receptors that you're expressing, or the enzymes that you're expressing is out of whack. And that can manifest itself as certain disease states of inflammation or um, dementia, things like that. So, okay. Now, this is all very, very uh, theoretical at this time, of course. The, uh, the thing about prohibition is it delayed our understanding of cannabis as a plant and our endocannabinoid system. So That's unfortunate because, uh, you know, I see it being treated so differently in the public atmosphere. Like on one hand, like you said, mm-hmm. there are doctors and clinicians that are practicing and serving this to patients. And on the other hand, in states like Indiana, you're still a criminal if you are involved with it at all. And it's just unfortunate because I think that perception just kind of lingers. And with grouping it as a drug, people just automatically think it's bad and um, just won't even be open to it solely because of that classification. So I find that unfortunate, man. Absolutely. So one thing I tell people that have this the perspective of um, it's wrong or I still don't know. You know, it's just it could be bad. Could be a gateway drug. I ask them, have you ever been under the influence of cannabinoids? Has your son or daughter, has your grandson or granddaughter, no no matter how young they are? And the answer to that is always yes, because we produce cannabinoids. So even the person who has never tried cannabis is under the influence of cannabis. And to try to shift that perspective of like, 
it's yes, it is an exogenous substance that can be ingested in a quantity far greater than you can produce, but we have made it out to be something that it is. And it's become its own beast, like you said. This perception of it is it is an amazing study on human psychology and like how much science was lost. So at the turn of the century, 1800s to the 1900s, cannabis was widely used in America as a botanical extract. Very commonly used. One of the, probably the second most commonly used um, botanical extract at the time. Wow. And then prohibition in the 1930s to now, we ha- are just now re-edging ourselves. Not, not, not just the public, um, I, that's understandable, but from a clinician perspective, how much information was lost through that relatively short period of time. Yeah, that is unfortunate, man. Um, you know, question I'm curious about, uh, the, well, the one that gets asked most often is whether or not marijuana is a harmful substance. And I think that that's kind of like a uh, off-course question, if you will. I think the better question is maybe how harmful is marijuana compared to other substances that we ingest on a regular basis? So I'm thinking, you know, there are people that are daily soda pop drinkers that will tell you that, you know, cannabis is bad and harmful and you shouldn't do it. But I'm like, well, you're drinking 75 grams of high fructose corn syrup every day and you're telling me what's bad. So, you know, how harmful is it, would you say, compared to kind of these daily substances that people take in on a normal basis, if you could compare? Yeah, and that's, that's an excellent point that that's a question that many people bring up. It's really kind of a loaded question. So firstly, you have recent this hasn't been in the news recently, certain states were centers. I just don't know, you know, the potential harm of cannabis. We cannot legalize it, even for medicinal use in some states. I think an equally uh, important question is, what is the potential harm of not making this available to people? So patients who are not getting relief from their medications that do get relief from cannabis are put in a position where they either have to um, do an illegal activity and everything that goes with that, if they're a parent or if they have a job or whatever, you are taking a risk and the psychological impact that goes with that. Um, So that question is framed in, I think, a bias, definitely a biased way that is trying to push us. But if we did take that, just for the sake of of the argument, how harmful is it? Um, You can look at harm a few different ways. So one would be, I think a lot of people wonder, is it addictive? Physiologically, it is not addictive. There can be a psychological dependence upon it that would be, um, there's a scale of this that would be less than or near caffeine, which I don't see anyone having a problem with uh, <laughs> the amount of caffeine that's consumed in this country. But the other question would be uh, total harm. So even in people who use cannabis a lot, the harm that has been demonstrated is very, very minuscule. So there's thousands of years of use uh, documented of cannabis in a lot of recent use. I will say that cannabis that is available now is slightly different which we can touch on. Um, The important thing is that if you were to, let's say worst case scenario, you're using cannabis, not for medicine, just as because you like the way it feels. So you don't have something wrong with you that you're treating and you're using it, um, what they would call as chronic use, repetitive, multiple times per day. Uh, You will see a change in your endocannabinoid system. So you'll get a down regulation of your cannabinoid receptors where they're actually enveloped into the cells, so they're not available on the surface anymore. But we see that reverse with cessation of use. So after a couple of days, um, and so the way that you can tell if that's happening to you, if you're wondering about this, I don't want to scare you. It's not like, again, relative harm, I would say for cannabis is very little. To stop a sign that this is happening is what is tolerance. So if you need to use more and more and more cannabis to achieve the same effects you were looking for before, 
that's a sign that you're developing tolerance. You can just reduce your use for a couple of days and that will start to correct itself. So, um, but you, if you are trying to compare it to something like uh, soda pops where you're just ingesting pure sugar and leading to huge spikes in your glucose and the uh, ramifications of diabetes down the line, there's no comparison there. So that's a, that's a question that, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a question that when someone asks it, I'm like, I don't know where to start. How much time do we have? Right, right. Yeah, I imagine there could be like whole papers written on it and probably are. Um, you know, you've touched on the chemical composition slightly, like THC or, uh, well, THC is the compound that most people know that's a psychoactive yeah. compound. I know uh, CBD has gained some prominence lately, but uh, you know, one thing that you informed me about um, you know, below these strains and below these psychoactive chemicals are these uh, little things called terpenes that uh, kind of change the characteristic, if you will, from even like a smell standpoint, from a mm-hmm. uh, effect standpoint. I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on terpenes and how they are involved. Absolutely. So uh, terpenes are what gives everything its smell. So if you were to think of a citrus fruit, a lemon, a lime, the component in it that, that um, the terpenes provide the smell, a lot of that is uh, limonene. This is something that's also present in cannabis, and uh, they use it also in a lot of other products for uh, our consumption. So, like cleaning supplies have a citrus smell usually to them because of the psychological. Uh, effect that it imparts a, a clean, a lively awakened smell. That's why they put it into cleaning products. So these are things that we have known about for a long time. And when you're smelling cannabis, that is a combination of all these terpenes in that specific chemotype or chemical variety of cannabis or what they call strains in dispensary. So, um, and you're right. So that those terpenes can make you, the thinking is what's called the entourage effect. So these terpenes modulate the effect of the cannabinoids to to help determine how you're feeling after you use it. Whether this is a um, variety of cannabis that makes you more asleep and just couch lock narcotic-like, or uh, maybe has it more of an uplifting, mood-boosting, energetic, effect. The thinking is that the terpenes combined with the cannabinoids determine that final effect. Okay. And so these terpenes kind of maybe sit below in classification than the standard indica versus sativa. Because I know that's kind of like the popular thing that people know in terms of, you know, indica being kind of the downer, sativa being the upper. Um, It gets a little bit more complicated than that going into these terpenes. Would it be correct to characterize it that way? Yeah. Yeah. So the indica... That indica sativa talk is um, sparks some debate. Uh, so really, indica and sativa are trying to say two different things. One is the morphology of the plant, so what its structure is. So you may have heard that an indica plant is more short and squatty, denser buds, more producing, has wider um, leaf structure. And a sativa is a lankier plant, thinner leaves. Um, grows more in the equatorial regions as opposed to the mountainous regions of indica. At the same time, we're trying to say that these uh, indica and sativa are also the effects that they have as well and classify them there. The problem with that is the amount of crossing of plants that we have done. So that may be an accurate way to uh, describe them if there hadn't been so much crossing of plants when we were talking about original land races. Um, but when you're going into the dispensary and they say, this is indica, this is sativa, that probably from a scientific perspective is meaningless. But you're right that that's how they're described as indica being um, more sedating, more of a downer uh, couch lock if you're looking for pain relief and sativa being more uplifting, mood boosting. And likely what's going on is the chemical 
components of the specific cannabis that you're talking about are determining that. And it's indica sativa structure no longer is an accurate representation of uh, what its effects will be. It's but more the shape again, of the plant. Is that what yeah, you're saying? It, it, yeah, it's just, it's kind of used um, in two different ways that don't go together. Okay. So, but yeah, you're right on that, that those are uh, what are going to determine the overall effects there. That's cool, man. That's cool. Um, I know they have different strains called like, you know, lemon kush and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that limonene is what would give it that lemon smell that uh, these people are describing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So, and an interesting thing is when I moved out to Oregon, they were only providing THC content, CBD content. And you, when you go to the dispensary and that's on a percentage basis. Um, but and when I would ask if they're testing terpenes, they weren't. Now, as more people have wanted to know that, they are starting to provide the terpene analysis too. But what I always tell people is your nose knows. So if you use cannabis before and you smell it, you can associate that uh, with a previous version you've had that smelled very similar and will likely have more effects as well. Okay, okay. Man, it's all about, you know, natural intuition, if you can really tune into it, I think, with a lot of things. Yeah, the nose nose. Yeah. So uh, can you talk about method of ingestion? Because uh, there seem to be some differences there as well, whether it's like an edible because it gets broken down in the liver and becomes a different chemical in the body than if you smoke it. And, you know, combustion kind of has different chemicals released than vaporization, as I understand it. Uh, Can you give some insight into ingestion? Absolutely. So, well, first, if we go back to talk about the cannabinoids, when they're in the raw plant, they're actually in their acidic uh, state. So if you've heard or had some friends get together and make edibles, you know, you have to cook the cannabis and what they say to activate it. That's decarboxylation. So that's kind of a misconception. The acidic cannabinoids are physiologic, physiologically active. So I'm drinking a cannabis tea right now. And that has not been decarboxylated. So I'm getting THCA, CBDA, the other minor cannabinoids in their acidic forms. So that's the, what I would say the first way you can ingest cannabis is without decarboxylation in its raw form, either in a tea, um, you can juice it, you can just, you can straight up eat it. A lot of people would see that as an absolute blasphemy and as a waste of weed because, uh, like, what are you doing, man? But um, that would be my first point is that the acidic cannabinoids are active as well. Um, so if you look at THCA, for example, uh, that has potential to be used for some inflammatory GI issues, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, IBD. Um, it's in, I won't go into it, but uh, the other ways to ingest would be when you're decarboxylating. Decarboxylation is when you expose it to heat, it loses a carboxyl group. So THCA um, converts to THC. So you mentioned ingestion. If you were to ingest something that had been decarboxylated, say you're making brownies, it had been exposed to the heat that would cause for that transformation. You're right. That THC high will be different than if you were to smoke cannabis. Reason for that is, well, a few things. One that you mentioned, when you eat something, you digest it, and then absorption takes place and goes straight to the liver. And that's where metabolism occurs. THC is converted to a different molecule, 11-hydroxy-THC, that is actually more psychoactive than um, an intoxicating THC. So that's one thing. The other is... Uh, it's absorbed at a different rate and the onset is different. So this is something that, that I always encounter, especially people, people who come from states that don't have access to cannabis and come to legal states. <laughs> they eat, they go and they're like, yeah, I'm going to try this, uh, eat this gummy. And they're like, I didn't feel anything. And so I ate another and I doubled my dose. And I'm like, I know where this is going, you know? It, and then like three hours later, they're on their ass and they can't do anything because uh, 
the time that it takes for you to start to feel anything is much, much longer. So when you inhale cannabis, uh, that goes into your bloodstream basically instantaneously. So you'll feel uh, onset in a couple of minutes and you'll be at your peak concentration of THC in your bloodstream very quickly. As opposed to when you eat it, it takes a much longer time. And it also is uh, the duration of that, of those effects are a lot, lot longer. And then if you want to talk about the difference in inhalation, so smoking, this is really interesting because smoking, there hasn't been a lot of research that has proven smoking to be really damaging. Hmm. The cannabis, I'm saying. Yeah. So, but you would expect it because you are combusting plant material, which produces known carcinogens, polyaromatic hydrocarbons. Smoke is not good for the cilia in your bronchial tree. It is, smoke is just bad to inhale. And you would think with this inhalation of carcinogens, we would see an increased risk in lung cancers, which there hasn't been a demonstration of. Now, the thinking behind that is maybe the... Um, the cannabinoids are helping to mitigate that. Hmm. But uh, so smoking is not a recommend with the route that I would recommend if you're using it medicinally. Vaporization would be a much uh, less uh, irritating way to do it. So when you're vaporizing, you bring to a temperature that vaporizes the terpenes, the cannabinoids, but does not combust plant material. So you're not having a lot of the byproducts. There still are some. Um, harmful byproducts, but a much lowered concentration. And uh, that would be my recommendation for inhalation. The other way that you can, um, well, there's many ways, I mean, you can use it transdermally. You can use it sublingually, that's under the tongue. Uh, so in a tincture. And that is a little bit different than ingestion because it goes through your oral mucosal membranes directly into your bloodstream onset of that would be between smoking and uh, ingestion. Um, you can use it rectally. You can use, basically, um, there's many different ways to ingest. Most common inhalation and ingestion. Okay, okay. Yeah, man, um, I too have heard and experienced the edible story that you're talking about in terms mm -hmm. of, oh, you know, this isn't hidden. This isn't there. You know, uh, let me take another one. And then next thing I know, I'm rolling around in the bed, you know, like wondering what's going on. So, oh man, I mean, it's happened to me countless times. I'll be making a batch of something and I start eating the batter and I'm like, I got no idea what I, how much I just say there. Sure enough on my ass. But yeah, so that's, and actually it's funny the ER visits in the States that um, when they, like when they first open up, go up because of an over-ingestion. So typically this is always self-limiting. You're going to be fine. It's going to wear off eventually. It can definitely make you extremely dizzy, nauseous. Uh, so I wouldn't, if you're just chilling on the couch or in bed, you should be fine. If you're, I wouldn't recommend using any heavy machinery or anything like that. <laughs> so um, as I understand, the LD50 of cannabis is, like pretty high, like the amount you'd have to take to die. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh uh, yeah. So the that's the lethal dose. Fifty percent of the lethal lethal dose, or the lethal dose that will kill fifty percent. So that is um, basically unattainable for a human using normal methods of consumption. Uh, they basically they use I think it's rhesus monkeys that they tried this on. Uh, to determine and basically just pumping in full as, as much THC as you possibly could. Right now, it, it just traditional methods of consumption, it's almost impossible to achieve that. It's kind of wild. Um, you know, I know fear of like death and harm or some things that scare people away, but I think it's this, you know, education comes out, you know, you're talking about the endocannabinoid system and some of the benefits. Um, you know, I think people will see it in more of a positive light. Um, can you touch on like uh, a little bit of why it's prescribed and like some of the ailments? I know you mentioned like anti-inflammatory yeah. effects and things like that. Uh, what are some of the reasons that they prescribe it? Sure. Uh, so one thing I'll mention that 
um, early on, cannabis, when it was studied, had to be, there's a doctor in California, Dr. Abrams, who's a um, oncologist, I believe it is. And when he was treating patients, he noticed that a lot of his patients were using cannabis on their own, self-medicating because it was helping with their treatments. It may have been HIV. It was either HIV or oncology, and they were uh, dealing with neuropathy, nerve pain. Um, I think it might have been chemotherapy-induced nerve pain as well. And so he had an overwhelming amount of patients that were using this and uh, wanted to study it. But when he went to try to get funding to study cannabis, it was because of its federal status as being illegal, he technically couldn't study any potential benefit from it. So he included it as a like secondary measure looking for drug interactions. It's basically how he was able to like bring it into his study. Um, I just wanted to frame it like that because we are still very early on in funding research to show us how it's helping and what it will help. But um, so a lot of use in oncology, while cannabis has shown anti-tumor and anti-cancer properties, that's not its primary use in oncology. That's a secondary uh, adjunctive therapy to mitigate a lot of the effects of our um, oncology medicines that aren't as selective so they can have a lot of vomiting, uh, nerve pain, just general lethargy and, and pain. So it can be used as an adjunct for oncology uh, patients. It can also be used, as I mentioned, for certain inflammatory diseases. There's research in um, autism, seizures is one of the main ones, uh, specific types of seizures, uh, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury. And the U.S. government actually achieved, filed a patent, I believe it was 2001, for cannabinoids as antioxidants and neuroprotectants. Yeah. Really? Yes. So, it, which is kind of amazing because then to leave it as a federally scheduled uh, one substance, which indicates no potential use as a medicinal therapeutic, while simultaneously filing a patent that is specifying its benefit as a neuroprotectant and antioxidant. Um, but that kind of shows you the meandering course of cannabis history in this, in this country. So the uses are uh, wide glaucoma, reducing intraocular pressure. Um, a big implication right now is uh, chronic pain treatment. So with the opioid crisis, um, helping to achieve pain reduction without use of opioids or uh, lowering the dose of opioids needed. But one thing that I will say that's important about cannabis is it affects every single person differently. So if it works for one person, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for the other person or at near close to the same dose. So if you take, see if you have a patient, two patients with each, for example, one could be at a 10 to 100 fold dose of total cannabinoids than the other to achieve the same results. So it's a very complex medicine. And I think that that's one thing that scares us in our new model of medicine, single molecule, specified dose range based on population. So you can say 10 milligrams for people that have this and, and that then will work from there where cannabis requires a lot more individual um, input on both the clinician side and also the patient side. So a lot of achieving good results with cannabis as a patient is uh, having introspection on how you're feeling. And there's, there's ways that that can be taught. I mean, it's not difficult. It's just not what we're used to as patients in this country. We kind of treat medicine like fast food. Go to the pharmacy, give me my shit and let's go. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, I don't want to think about it. But, um, so it takes more effort on both the patient side and a patient side to achieve the best result with cannabis. But you know, that's not foreign to that world. Like I uh, think about acne medication. I had the unfortunate ailment of having acne growing up and you know, go to the dermatologist and they'd be like, oh, well, let's try this antibiotic. Oh, let's try that antibiotic. And you know, probably wreck my gut microbiome in the process, but um, it was just kind of like a shotgun approach. And so if that's 
what we're doing from a clinical perspective for something like that, it seems to me like one could apply that same introspection and kind of testing in a safe capacity to a substance like cannabis. Oh, absolutely. And that's a fantastic point. So I actually, um, it can be viewed as one of two ways. When I speak of it, the difficulties of implementing it, that's not how I view it. I view it as an opportunity, but I think a lot of clinicians see it that way. Like this is going to be hard to, uh, to achieve results with when in reality, it is necessitating a return to individualized medicine, which, uh, I think you're going to get more optimal outcomes out of if you're able to have that, you have to have the time to have that or the time with your patient, your patient has to be, you as a patient have to be um, more willing to, to be involved in your own care. But I view it as an opportunity. I think it's in tune with myself um, using cannabis. So, and countless patients have told me the same thing. So I agree with you that it's, uh, it shouldn't be a barrier. It's just kind of how we have um, different than what we're used to in recent history. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, when you think about just like people anyway, it's like the things that we're exposed to are different. The foods that we consume are different. The activities mm -hmm. that we do are different. Like, why would we not expect us to have to individualize our care. You know, why would we think that we can yeah. take this templated approach? Like there are some generalities with the human body. Don't get me wrong. That's how we can learn medicine. But I mean, once you get to the edges, I, I feel like it should be an individualized experience. Absolutely. I, I was thinking about what you said about, you know, benefit and, uh, you know, spinal cord injury. Um, I'll tell a little anecdote. Um, I broke my neck in January of 2019. And so I'm in Canada, I'm in the hospital, and uh, it's about you know three, four days after I break my neck. And my like, it seems like my ears are locked to my shoulders, like based on how swollen my neck was and all the pain I was in and everything like that. And uh, I was getting pharmaceuticals. Um, however, I made the choice, um, and Canada is, it's legal federally there. Um, I made the choice to have a friend of mine bring me a cannabis edible. And I was like, you know what? I'm in the hospital. I don't freaking care. I just want to feel better. Um, I eat this piece of chocolate. And that was the first time that I was able to turn my head. It relieved a lot of the pain and it like loosened up. Um, I don't know if it's like my fascia or like what it was, but just based on my mother seeing what happened as a result of that, she became a believer. And she told mm -hmm. my friend, hey, I don't know, you know, what that was or why it did that, but please bring him more if that's the impact that it's going to have. And I think that I was more easily able to wean myself off of the uh, narcotics that they were giving me at the time because I was able to have that. And so I don't know, man, I don't, I don't have a lot of the pain uh, at the times I've ingested cannabis since I've been injured. I don't get pain at all. It's like a magical substance. Whereas I hear, you know, other wheel friends uh, who aren't open to the idea of cannabis talk about how much pain they're in and how they're yeah. you know, getting baclofen pumps, putting their back and stuff like that to stop spasms and all kinds of things, you know? Absolutely. And that's uh, a good point that you, be, that you bring up. Um, I don't know your mom's previous thoughts on cannabis, but a lot of people now are seeing cannabis helped either themselves or loved ones that are, uh, again, it can be used for a lot of things that are, uh, that come with aging. So with our aging population, you have a lot of people who previously would have said, that's the devil's lettuce <laughs> and are now saying, wow, I've never seen my significant, my loved one that relieved from anything that the doctors have ever given them for whatever it may be. And that is one of the things that I think is starting to, help cut through a lot of the if you think about people who are that old how much propaganda they, they've lived through and I, sometimes it takes something that profound to cut through that and dissolve those um those biases that they built up over time oh yeah they were victims of reefer madness 
<laughs> so yeah. where do you see the future of cannabis going? I know, uh, you know there's still some controversy, but uh, it seems as if, as if legislation is gaining momentum. Uh, I know a bill was introduced. I think it passed uh, the House in Ohio, maybe. See the House or the Senate um, for decriminalization, um, which isn't legalization, but I mean, still yeah. kind of changing, changing. We do have uh, medical now. I know you didn't have it uh, when you were in school. So it's slow, but you know, where do you see the future going and like how is perception changing? Sure. Uh, so I think that, I mean, 10 years ago, I was saying that it, it was, I thought it would have already been, I mean, it's kind of tracked with what I thought, I guess I, the slow grinds of, of government. I, I, I'm a little, it's a little bit more optimistic that we could have gotten farther now, but um, I'll talk with what, Unless where I think it will go, but what I think is important, a couple of things when you're considering legislation. So like for you in Ohio, if you have a medical program, you're recognizing one of the big issues right now is that cannabis is being recognized as having medicinal potential and that its potential harm is not what we thought it was, yet it's being treated differently than other therapeutics would be. So it's looked at differently by doctors, uh, by the public still. So education is, is necessary. That's going to be what, what cuts through that. Um, secondly, though, like in Ohio for your medical program, I think that is one very important thing is everyone should have access to growing their own medication for cannabis. And uh, that's one thing that Ohio's program did not allow for. It had a limited number of dispensaries where the financial burden on the patient that would require a lot of a high dose of cannabinoids is, um, is absurd. And to say, yes, you would benefit from this. You could grow it in your closet, in your backyard, but we're not going to allow you to do that because we are worried that you're going to divert that to the black market. doesn't make any sense. So taking a look at, um, we're going to have to reform law and using science to guide that. So that'd be one thing, allowing everyone to have a personal grow of cannabis. Another area that is important is acknowledging the harm that prohibition did to specific groups of people, black indigenous communities of color to not, and then restore attempting to restore justice through the um, legislation that we passed. So early on, states that had people who wanted to legalize cannabis and knew that they weren't going to stop it. So the West Coast states, um, they would build things into the legislation like more tax revenue from cannabis to uh, the police force or something like that, where the tax revenue from cannabis is, is uh, a great um, resource for a state, but where are we going to put that? Does it make sense to put it into a police force budget when you're taking something off the table for them to, to enforce? Um, and making sure that that revenue is going to places to address the harms that prohibition did. The other thing is, we haven't talked about this at all, but hemp which is cannabis sativa L, same plant as your drug type cannabis. But hemp was one of the uh, most important agricultural products of the early 1900s as well. Prohibition tied up hemp in the uh, making cannabis illegal. So hemp is just a legal classification for cannabis that has less than 0.3% THC. Same plant, um, now there can be different structures of that, but this plant can be used uh, for biofuels, for building materials. Like you, you show me the wood that is used for paper, yeah. sails, ropes, all types of things. And again, when we talk about harm of, of making it legal, what was the harm of uh, prohibition and taking our hemp industry off of the table? So right now, if you wanted to build a hemp house, there's no infrastructure or people who know how to build with hemp in the United States. Very, very few. Uh, if you want to use hemp as a 
industrious plant for the bass fiber in, in the uh, woody herd and the inside. There's a lot of places that can take that and efficiently use it because we made it illegal. So as a result, we have, we're more reliant on plastics, um, other things. And where are we, where has that, or will be the long-term consequences of that? So that's exciting as well, using hemp and um, environmentally, the benefits that we can get from that. Uh, but hopefully we can um, let the science lead and, because there still is a lot of stigma and misunderstanding of cannabis and what its potential harm could be, um, which is not really there. So don't, letting fear guide us is not a good way to ever live our lives. Fear breeds overreaction, unfortunately. Yeah. And man, it's, I mean, that sustainability piece that you touched on, uh, I mean, it, it takes a hemp crop, what, three, four months, maybe six months at the most. Um, to grow where how long does it take a tree? I mean, you know, years, yeah. years. So um, if we could huge carbon sink, yeah, at the same yeah. time it can fight or remediate soils or pull heavy metals from the soils. It fixes nitrogen. So it can, uh, as a rotational crop, it can be very advantageous uh, from a farming perspective. Um, and then it's like in an alternate universe where we didn't prohibition didn't happen. What would have been, what would industry have looked like right now? Maybe hemp could have prevented some of our reliance on plastics or um, other things that have more uh, secondary waste and are, don't degrade and they're now a pain to deal with. So it's, um, yeah, I find the whole history of cannabis very fascinating when you look at it like that. The, the fact that there was never actually evidence that cannabis is really harmful yet the prohibition campaign was so successful and the long-term ramifications are kind are hard, uh, really hard to quantify. It's crazy, man. Uh, it seems like there were a few guys who have changed the course of history as it pertains to like, you know, running these smear campaigns and shaping policy. And it's sad. You talk about the plastic. I saw um, like for the first time they're seeing microplastics found in people's blood and their lungs and yep. stuff. And then you have like, you know, I don't know, man, you have that and the whole Teflon thing, which is a whole different story. You know, all these weird chemicals being found in people's blood. It's just, it's sad. It would have been cool if we could have avoided some of that. But uh, I know you introduced yourself as a father, first and foremost. You know, that's what you wanted to do. Um, you've got your little guy, Kai, in the world now. Um, if you had the ears, eyes, and attention of Kai and everyone else in the world, and you could deliver a message as it pertains to, you know, everything related to cannabis and perhaps in general. You know, what message would you deliver to the people? Yeah, well, uh, as it pertains to cannabis, I would say that uh, if you look at the history of cannabis, it can be a great teacher for um, our vulnerabilities psychologically, especially to fear, as we touched on. And uh, in general, I would say it, uh, especially to Kai, I would say keep your curiosity. Uh, and don't let fear guide you. Don't be afraid to love. Don't be afraid to love yourself, love your friends, love people that you don't even know, love things that aren't even people. But yeah, that would be it. That's amazing, man. Well, you certainly enlightened me, and this was an awesome conversation. I appreciate your time. I know it's valuable. They've got a lot going on, uh, especially being a new dad. So thank you so much for spending time with me. Oh, damn, man. I love you. You're my brother. I, uh, every conversation I have with you, I uh, reflect on because I always learn something and I appreciate you taking the time to have me on. Hey, I love you too, man. I love you too.